Let's pray together. Our Father, we are a people who are so thankful, full of gratitude for the mercy and the grace that you have lavished upon us, being rich in mercy toward us when none of us deserved your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, for the manifold many promises in your word concerning uh, our life in you, both for the present and for the future. Uh, Things, Lord, that are just mind-blowing when we stop to really consider them. And I pray, Lord, as we open now Genesis 23, perhaps a lesser-known section of Scripture, that you would come now and be our Lord, you are Lord over this text, be our guide and our teacher, and Father, may you implant this word afresh into our minds and hearts, and may hope uh, blossom in us as we leave this place later today. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord and for his sake, amen. Well, certainly the 23rd chapter of Genesis uh, doesn't get as much discussion or airtime in Christian circles as Genesis 22 does. Genesis 22 is, of course, that high climactic moment in the story of Abraham that we ventured through last week, if you were with us. Genesis 22 is the story of Abraham binding Isaac and offering Isaac to God in the land of Moriah. Genesis 22 is profoundly religious in nature. It is a chapter saturated with the language of sacrifice. But when we come to Genesis 23, which we are today, what we find is a chapter that doesn't mention God's actions even once. Nor does this chapter record any of the words of God. In fact, the bulk of Genesis 23 is taken up with a pretty secular business transaction that happens between Abraham and a Hittite man named Ephron. So there is a fairly noticeable contrast then between the God-colored, sacrificially-based Genesis 22 and the largely secular Genesis 23. Our question is, as it always is, uh, when we approach Old Testament texts, the question is, where is Jesus to be found in Genesis 23? How or where does Christ reveal himself in this chapter? We want to work toward an answer this morning. Let's go to the text, to Genesis 23.1. The event recorded in the initial verses of this chapter happened 4,047 years ago. And that event was the death of the woman who in a real way can be considered the mother of our faith. Sarah is her name. Sarah begat Isaac. And Isaac begat Jacob, and Jacob had 12 sons, and eventually the Lord Jesus Christ 
descended from this family lineage. Verses 1 and 2 tell us that Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. Now, we don't know what Sarah was up to for the final 37 years of her life, for those years that happened in between Sarah birthing Isaac and Sarah dying, because Scripture doesn't tell us anything about those 37 years. We do know, according to Genesis 25.20, that Sarah didn't live to see her son Isaac get married. But just notice here in verse 21 something important, and that is the bare fact that Sarah's lifespan is given. Don't miss this. Sarah lived 127 years. She is the only woman in Scripture to have her lifespan recorded. And that indicates, I think, something about her importance. As I said a few moments ago, Sarah, who died 4,047 years ago, can really be considered the mother of our faith, of our Christian faith. Sarah dies, we notice in verse 2, in the land of Canaan, in the promised land, in a place called Kiryat Arba, which means the city of the four. Probably that city name, Kiryat Arba, the city of the four, refers to a cluster of four settlements that later came to be called Hebron. Sarah dies in Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. Now friends, Abraham and Sarah were the chosen ones. They were the ones elected by God to bring the blessing of God to the world. And yet, notice, death touches them too. Abraham and Sarah come after Adam, and so death affects them too, even the chosen ones. Sarah dies, and Abraham, notice, mourns and weeps. He mourns and weeps out of the pain of losing his wife. And most likely Abraham did what mourners in, ancient, in the ancient Near East did. He probably tore his garments and messed up his hair and cut off a portion of his beard and threw dust on his head and fasted as he wept for Sarah. Friends, notice this very carefully because it's good for us to learn this in our contemporary world. It is entirely appropriate to mourn and to be sad when we bury a loved one, even if we are believers. Amen? But we don't mourn without hope. We mourn with hope. But for Abraham, his mourning only lasts for a single verse. Notice, in verse 3, Abraham rises up from before his dead. Before, from before Sarah's lifeless body. And Abraham goes to talk to the Hittites. Now the Hittites here are people who had descended from a man named 
Het. Het was Canaan's second son. If you're interested, you can see Genesis 10:15. These Hittites live in the land of Canaan. They are part of the culture of Canaan, and Abraham goes to have a little chat with them. In verse 4, Abraham simply cuts to the chase with these Hittites. He says, I am a sojourner and foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of my sight. And so, the rather secular flavored bargaining and negotiating of Genesis 23 begins. We move now, we rather swiftly move from Abraham mourning in verse 2 to Abraham now expressing the need for a place to bury Sarah. Now in the climate of the Middle East, the heat meant that you really didn't want to delay the burial of a corpse. So Abraham moves quickly now to secure a burial plot for Sarah. Now I want us to pay special attention here to two things in verse 4. The first thing is that as Abraham speaks with the Hittites, notice this, he self-identifies, doesn't he? He self-identifies as a sojourner and a foreigner. There in the land of Canaan, I am a sojourner and foreigner among you. So some 60 years after God had called Abraham to go to the land of Canaan, Abraham is self-identifying here as a person who is not indigenous to Canaan, as a person who did not enjoy the rights of Canaanite citizens. He is self-identifying as a person, on a formal level at least, who owned no land in Canaan. As Ian Duguid comments, he says, Abraham was still just passing through. The situation was just as exactly as Hebrews 11.13 says it was. Abraham and his kin, says Hebrews 11.13, they acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. In Psalm 39.12, David also acknowledged before God that he was a sojourner during his earthly life. In 2 Peter, or sorry, 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11, the same identification, that of sojourners and exiles, applies to us, to you and I, who are the church of Jesus Christ. I think that there is a real sense in which we should identify with Abraham in verse 4. Friends, we as believers are sojourners and foreigners. Do you know yourself that way? Sojourners and foreigners as the people of Jesus who live in a land called Canada. As Dale Ralph Davis says, we are a people, listen to this because I think it's a good description, we are a people as Christian believers who sit loose to this age and all that it holds and offers. As believers, we are looking for a better city. Amen? We are looking for the new heavens and the new earth. We are not content and complacent 
to remain settled in the old age that is passing away. That's the first thing to chew on in verse 4. The second thing to pay special attention to is that word property. Set your eyes on that word property in verse 4. Abraham says to the Hittites, Give me property among you for a burying place. That English word property there is translated from a word in the original Hebrew text, the word ahuzah, ahuzah, which some English versions actually translate here as the word possession. Give me a possession among you for a burying place. Now listen very carefully. This same word, ahuzah, or property, or possession, was already used back at Genesis 17.8, where it had come out of the mouth of God. Now in that moment, in Genesis 17.8, as God was forging his covenant with Abraham, God had promised Abraham, he had said this, I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting ahuzah, for an everlasting possession. So that, based on that use of the word in Genesis 17.8, the word carries definite inheritance connotations. The Ahuzah was land or property that God promised as an inheritance to Abraham. And it's interesting that after Genesis 17.8, our word doesn't get used again in the Hebrew text of Genesis until our verse, Genesis 23.4, when Abraham asks those living in Canaan for Ahuzah, for possession of a plot of property in this very land that God had promised Abraham as an inheritance. As we will see, this word is something of a key word, a motific word in Genesis 23. It's going to be used twice more, down in verse 9 and again in verse 20. And then after Genesis 23, it doesn't get employed again until way later in Genesis 36. So the upshot, friends, the upshot is that it's an important word for Genesis 23 that the author, that God, wants us to pay attention to. We'll come back to it. But let's keep going forward in the story. Abraham asks for this ahuzah, this property or this possession in the promised land of Canaan in order that he can bury his wife Sarah. And beginning in verse 5, The Hittites answer Abraham. This gets very interesting. They say this. Hear us, my Lord. You are what? You are a prince of God among us. So in verse 4, notice this. In verse 4, Abraham had identified himself as a lowly person without rights in Canaan, as a sojourner and as a foreigner. But now the Hittites, they exalt Abraham with this honorific title, Prince of God. Now remember back in Genesis 21, verse 22, where Abimelech 
had said to Abraham this. He had said to Abraham, God is with you in all that you do. Well, now the Hittites recognize Abraham as a prince of God. And this title they give to Abraham, Prince of God, is somehow fitting, isn't it? The first man, Adam, who was to have dominion, royal word, have dominion as a king over creation, Adam had failed in his mission, so eventually God called Abraham to take over the royal mandate, and to act as human king with dominion over the creation of God. Now Abraham receives a royal title from the nations, interestingly enough, and the title is Prince of God. It's somehow fitting for Abraham. The Hittites say to Abraham, listen to what they say, Hear us, my Lord, you are a prince of God among us, Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. So the Hittites are suggesting here that Abraham simply use one of their tombs that they already owned to bury Sarah, which sounds on the face of it like a pretty generous offer. The problem with it for Abraham was that if he just borrowed a tomb for the burial, he wouldn't own any property. And Abraham desired to secure a foothold in the promised land. He wanted a piece of rightfully owned property in the land that God had promised. Verse 7, Abraham listens to this proposal from the Hittites and he deferentially bows to them, notice, But then in verse 8, because Abraham's not entirely satisfied with the proposal that the Hittites had made, he continues the negotiations. Abraham says, If you are willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat for me Ephron the son of Zohar. Now, as Bruce Waltke points out here, It's rare in the Bible to have someone who's not from Israel identified by his father's name. But that's what we have here at the end of verse 8. This Hittite man named Ephron is identified as Ephron of Zoar, son of Zoar. What this probably indicates is that Ephron was a prominent Hittite citizen, a man who stood out amongst the Hittites. He gets identified by his father's name. So friends, now get the picture here. We've got Abraham, the wealthy and prominent sojourner, calling for negotiations with Ephron, son of Zohar, a wealthy and prominent Hittite. Two men who are known to make big deals and drive big wheels. Abraham says to the Hittite men that have gathered there, Entreat for me Ephron, the son of Zohar, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns 
It is at the end of his field. Abraham knows exactly what he wants. For the full price, let him give it to me in your presence as what? As akuza, as property, as possession, as part of the inheritance that I was promised, says Abraham, for a burying place. So with this second use now of the word Ahuzah in Genesis 23, Abraham now has asked the Hittites twice for Ahuzah, for possession, property, inheritance. Verse 10, enter Ephron. Now Ephron was sitting among the Hittites. Okay, so he's sitting there with his ancient Near Eastern Rolex on and his hair greased back. And Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of the Hittites of all who went in at the gate of the city where business was done. Verse 11, Ephron said to Abraham, No, my Lord, hear me. I give you the field, and I give you the cave that is in it. In the sight of the sons of my people, I give it to you. Bury your dead. So now a couple of things, a couple of things here about verse 11. First of all, as has been pointed out by several commentators, when Ephron says to Abraham, I give you the field, I give you the cave, Ephron is not sincerely suggesting that he would simply gift the field and the cave to Abraham. Rather, this is what you said in this ancient Near Eastern context when you started the process of haggling. I'll give it to you. Now, let's talk price. That's kind of the idea here. Ephron is a shrewd business guy. Back in verse 9, notice this, Abraham had only asked for the cave, right? The cave that was in Ephron's field. But now in verse 11, Ephron expands what's on the table to the cave and the field. Abraham, you can't just take the cave. The field comes with the cave. It's a package deal. The cave is not sold separately. What's he doing? Well, including both cave and field, Ephron now can demand a higher price. Verse 12, Abraham deferentially bows himself low again. And in verse 13, Abraham replies to Ephron and the assembled crowd. Abraham says, listen to what he says here, but if you will, uh, hear me. In other words, Ephron, if you would only listen, I said back at verse 9 that I was willing to pay full price in this transaction, whatever the price might be, money is no object. I give the price of the entire field, then accept it from me that I may bury my dead there. And then in verses 14 and 15, we have Ephron naming his price. Ephron answers, my Lord, listen to me. I love this. A piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver? What is that? 
between you and me. Bury your dead. What Ephron does here is he says, in effect, Abraham, we are both wealthy men. To guys like us, 400 shekels of silver is a paltry amount. An insignificant amount to men who have so much money in the bank. What is that between you and me? 400 shekels. Certainly, Abraham, we needn't quibble over 400 shekels. You give me 400 and consider it done. You can carry on grieving. You can go and bury your wife in a piece of land that you own, Abraham. (laughs) This is what Ephron is doing here. Ephron's a real wheeler dealer. 400 shekels of silver was a massive, outrageous price for this field and cave. Consider this, friends. When David bought the threshing floor of Aronah, upon which Solomon's temple would later be built, David bought that land for only 50 shekels of silver, one-eighth of the price that Ephron was asking for his cave and field. 400 shekels of silver was 100 pounds of silver, and the average laborer in this ancient Near Eastern society would have to work 40 years to earn that much. So Ephron's asking price is inflated. It is quite exorbitant. Watch Abraham. Verse 16. Abraham doesn't haggle. Abraham simply gives Ephron the 400 shekels of silver that he had asked for. Abraham listened to Ephron, and Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver that he had named in the hearing of the Hittites. 400 shekels of silver, according to the weights current among the merchants. For Abraham, the 400 shekel cost was no big deal. Listen, God had enriched Abraham with great wealth. Where was this money coming from? From God. God had given Abraham the means to make this transaction even at this exorbitant price. And Abraham needed this land both to properly bury his wife and to officially stake a claim to Ahuzah, to property, possession, inside the promised land. As Genesis 23 closes in verses 17 through 20, we get the sense, let's read these carefully, we get the sense in these verses of the massive significance of this moment in Holy Scripture when Abraham buys the first chunk of real estate for Israel inside Canaan. This is a defining moment in the history of Israel and in our history as Christians. And verses 17 through 20 labor to show us how important this was. Just listen to the tenor 
of verses 17 through 20. Listen to how much space is devoted here to describing the mailing address of this site that Abraham purchases. Listen to this. So the field of Ephron in Machpelah, mailing address, which was to the east of Mamre, more mailing address, the field with the cave, more mailing address, that was in it, and all the trees that were in the field throughout its whole area. Do you hear this? Moses, the narrator of Genesis, labors to identify the precise location and the place, the precise content even, of the real estate deal. He even makes sure to tell us that the trees that were in the field, well, they also appeared on the real property report. All of this property, with all of its chattels, he says at the tail end of verse 17, was made over to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites before all who went in at the gate of the city. Yes, huge moment. This little section of Canaan became Abraham's, and it became that way all legal-like. Verse 19. After this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, where? Well, of course, he buried her in the cave of the field of Machpelah, east of Mamre, that is, Hebron, in the land of Canaan. As if we didn't get the location once already, it's laid out for us again. Note again the repetition of the precise address and the contours of this place that Abraham bought. And as if we still don't get the significance of this moment, we have verse 20. The last verse in the chapter, verse 20 reads, The field and the cave that is in it were made over to Abraham as what? As Ahuzah, as property, possession, inheritance for a burying place by the Hittites. In Genesis 17:8, God had promised Abraham that to Abraham's offspring, God would give all the land of Canaan as an achuzah, as a possession. Now in Genesis 23:20, the first little stage of that promise comes true. Abraham buys his achuzah in Canaan with silver that had come from God. The little piece of Canaan, friends, that Abraham buys was God's down payment. It was the initial manifestation of God's land promise. Now coming true, Abraham buries Sarah in Canaan on land that he owned. And he did this at a very elderly age, trusting that the land promise would come to full fruition after he died. His offspring, his descendants through Isaac, would one day have the whole land of Canaan, but Abraham would not live to see it happen. Abraham buries Sarah on this little plot of land in the hope 
of something much greater that would happen after his lifetime. This moment toward the end of Genesis 23 is a hugely important moment for Israel and a hugely important moment for us in our Christian faith. So important was this place and the purchase of this place that Moses comes back to it three more times before the the book of of Genesis ends. When Abraham dies in Genesis 25, his sons Isaac and Ishmael bury him here in the same place as Sarah, according to 25 verse 9. Still later, when Isaac and Rebekah and Leah die, all three of them are also buried here in this place, according to Genesis 49, verses 29 to 32. And then Jacob, according to his wishes in his life, was also buried in death at this place, according to Genesis 50, verses 12 and 13. Today, the site is known as the Cave of the Patriarchs, and it sits today in what is called today the West Bank. Abraham's purchase of this place over 4,000 years ago is of such monumental significance because the purchase is God's down payment, God's assurance of something truly massive that he has promised us as believers. Let's track this through scripture for a minute in our closing moments. In the first chapter of the Bible, in Genesis 1.28, God commanded the first human beings to fill the earth. God wanted his glory spread over the face of the globe through his believing created human beings. When Adam failed, God then repeated the command to fill the earth to Noah and his sons. When Noah proved unsuccessful, and then when the people at Babel refused to spread and fill the earth, God hit the reset button and started afresh with Abraham. Abraham was to go to the land that God would show him, Genesis 12:1, and Abraham was to be the vehicle through whom God would bring blessing to all the families of the earth, Genesis 12, verse 3. According to Paul, in Romans 4:13. Abraham was to be the heir of the world. H-E-I-R, heir. Heir of the world. But that inheritance of the world would be initialized in the promised land of Canaan. And as we've seen in the story of Abraham as we've walked through it, the promise of the land of Canaan was reiterated, wasn't it, several times to Abraham and to Abraham's offspring throughout the story in Genesis 12:7 and in Genesis 13:15 and 13:17 and 15:7 and 15:18 and 17:8. And as we saw today in Genesis 23, Abraham acquires the initial sliver of the promise. He gets 
first, his first piece of the achuzah, the, the possession or the inheritance. After the day of Abraham, it would be another several centuries until Israel would finally take the bulk of the land of Canaan under the leadership of Joshua. But it wouldn't be until the time of King David, a little later on, that God would give Israel rest in the land, in the promised land. And then under David's son Solomon, Israel would actually expand her borders from the river Euphrates to the land of the Philistines to the border of Egypt. But friends, because of rampant and persistent sin against God, eventually both the northern and the southern kingdoms of Israel were exiled out of the land. Scripture uses some very graphic terminology for that. The land vomited them out. They were exiled. First in the north by the invading Assyrians and then later in the south by the invading Babylonians. The people of God returned from Babylon decades after the exile to a now devastated promised land and they began to rebuild and the Old Testament effectively ends there. Hundreds of years later, a man named Jesus walks up a mountain and he sits down to teach his disciples and to teach the crowds. And in the sermon that he preaches on that mount, Jesus shows us that God's promise of land was still in effect. Only now, listen, only now, the inheritance of land for God's people was not just a small patch of land in the Middle East called Canaan, but rather the inheritance was the entire earth. In Matthew 5, 5, Jesus said, Blessed are the meek, for they shall, what? Inherit. And with that word inherit, we should be thinking automatically land promise, Old Testament. They shall inherit what? The earth. Believers are getting the whole earth as an inheritance. God's plan is still to have his glory spread out across the entire earth just as it had been in Genesis 1.28 with Adam and then Noah and then Abraham and David. Jesus has commanded us as his church even now to spread his glory over the entire earth, hasn't he? When he said to us, make disciples of all nations. One day the earth will be filled with the glory of God, but we are still waiting for it. In fact, what we're waiting for, according to the New Testament, is a new heaven and new earth, Revelation 21.1. What we eagerly wait for is what's described, and I hope you're eager about this, what's described in 2 Peter 3.13, where the Apostle Peter says this, we are waiting, friends, for new heavens and a new earth 
in which righteousness dwells. Can you imagine that? A new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Right now, friends, righteousness does not dwell on this earth of the old passing age. We are still paranoid of nuclear threats. And we still have corrupt governments. And we still have domestic abuse. And we have unrighteous conflicts. And we have drug abuse. And we have packed out prisons and sex scandals and tax fraud. But friends, when Abraham purchased that little sliver of land from Ephron in Genesis 23, it was actually God making a down payment on the promise of a homeland for God's people. After all the years of promising land, God was coming through at last. Our God can be trusted to fulfill the land promise. Amen? Our God can be trusted to fulfill Matthew 5.5 5 and Revelation 21.1 and 2 Peter 3.13. Believers will inherit a new earth one day, as we're going to learn in our heaven series. Heaven is on a new earth, a renewed earth. It is physical. Your body will be raised one day if you are a believer. And you will live eternally with Jesus Christ in a physical, transformed, glorified body. I've said it many times. I'm not going to need these on the new earth. Because my eyes will be everlasting, glorified eyes. <laughs> I can't imagine that. We will enjoy an eternal homeland where righteousness dwells. And so, friends, with Abraham, we can bury our believing loved ones in the hope of something stupendous which is yet to come, an eternal homeland. When we die, which we will unless Jesus comes back first, when we die, we ourselves can go to our graves trusting in the down payment that God made when he raised Jesus from the dead as the first fruits of the resurrection. We can die as believers knowing that one day our physical bodies will also be raised physically to live eternally on a new earth with the risen Jesus forever. This is our hope. This is the blessed promise of God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we know that one day up on Mount Royal, believers who were buried there in some cases centuries ago are going to crack through the earth up out of their graves to live eternally with you on the renewed earth. Amazing. 
We know that your promises are true. And I pray for each person today, Lord, that they would trust you, that they would look ahead to the great and glorious things that you have prepared for us, especially if they're walking through difficulty now, especially if they have recently lost a loved one or are are preparing to lose somebody that has terminal cancer or some other disease. Father, may their hope be found in you and in the gospel. We thank you that these things are true, that they are bona fide because they have come from your authoritative almighty mouth. And so, Lord, help us to go forward in hope and in peace today. Thank you for being a father to us on this Father's Day, a father better than any of us human fathers could ever hope to be. We praise you for your fatherhood and sending Jesus, your son, to die in our place. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And now, believers, go forth from here, and having seen the Lord of glory on the mountain of worship and praise, go into the valley of life, knowing that the Lord of glory goes with you in the presence and power of his Spirit who dwells within you. Amen.